Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined this week by Dr. Richard Buzzichelli, and our topic for both this week and next week is going to be Humanae Vitae, uh, the encyclical uh, published in 1968 by Pope Paul VI. Uh, that really caused kind of a, a firestorm in the church. And uh, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary uh, next week on July 25th. Uh, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae. So to get us started, uh, this week we're, what we're going to do is we'd like to talk about kind of what was going on in the culture, what was going on in the church, uh, maybe maybe a little bit of the aftermath of what happened afterwards. And then next week, what we'd like to do is to discuss the encyclical ex- itself. What did the words actually say? What uh, what were maybe some of the ramifications as to further, uh, how has it influenced further uh, Catholic intellectual thought? Um, so, Dr. Buzzichelli, to get us started, um, was Humani Vitae, was it a reaction to something that the uh, that was happening in the culture? Was it, uh, was it a response to something that was asked of the church? Um, how do we how do we uh, begin to understand maybe the origins of uh, of humana vitae? Well, yeah. So humana vitae, humana vitae was um, essentially it was a response to a cultural uh, cultural crisis. What happened was uh, beginning in 1930, the uh, Lambeth Council in the uh, Anglican Communion for the first time admitted in a Christian denomination the possibility of some circumstances in which the use of contraception uh, would be considered morally permissible. This was a departure from the unanimous um, Christian tradition up to this point. Now, keep in mind that at that time, the pill did not yet exist. So the uh, contraceptive in question at the time of the Lambeth Conference was really um, condoms or you know some some other um, some other barrier method, right? Mm-hmm. But um, nonetheless, the move put on the table the idea that uh, somehow uh, it was possible for Christians to rethink the constant uh, teaching and tradition which we shared in common up to this point about the subject of uh, contraception. I find this a really interesting fact. Actually, about that uh, that episode in the life of the broader church, yeah. Um, because because the you know if you think about um, if you think about church dividing differences, right? You kind of imagine that um, if you really think about it, right? The people get further and further apart the longer their separation remains. You would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, you begin with less pivotal issues and you gradually move toward more pivotal issues, if that makes any sense, sure. right? Sure. Sure. So sure. first you're disagreeing over a question of, say, the um, uh, whether, whether uh, we want to say transubstantiation or consubstantiation about, the, about what happens in the consecration at the Eucharist. And then you're arguing over the true presence of Christ itself, right? Uh, and so finally, you're arguing about questions of what you even say about Jesus at all. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that, is that um, we had 
with the Anglicans, we'd, we'd actually passed through a number of very significant uh, disagreements before we ever got to the question of contraception. And that shows, actually, in my view, that the question about contraception cuts very deep to the very idea of the gospel and how we think about God. It's a very, very significant issue, though most people today regard it as something uh, on the periphery, right? Most people regard it as something that doesn't have to do with much. Right, right. In right, fact, right, right. I think it has to do with a great deal. And if you're following my um, my series on Humani Vitae uh, on the blog, you'll see um, you'll see me spell that out. But okay, so that was the the impetus began in 1930, really, and by the time the pill came to market in what was it, 1959, 1960, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly the um, there was there was a complete there was a completely new push in favor of contraception at that time. And of course, there were all kinds of arguments that were being made about how it would be a boon to um, the integrity of the family and happiness and marriage and all this kind of stuff, the good of children and the good of society. Uh, Paul VI exhibits in Humanae Vitae a profound skepticism with respect to those predictions, a skepticism that 50 years later, uh, in fact, much sooner than that, really proved to be um, to be correct. Right. He was he was right to be skeptical because. In fact, um, the, at least as a historical correlate, and we can argue about causation, but as a historical correlate, um, the, uh, the introduction of the pill corresponds with a sociological disaster. So, um, the, um, so the, by, by the early 1960s, people were clamoring for a wider acceptance within Christianity of contraception because they wanted to use the pill. And um, you might ask, well, why do they want to use the pill? It's funny when we talk about contraception, we we imagine that we're only really talking about the pill. Uh, We forget that there were ever any other methods and still are other methods, right? But we're talking today about hormonal contraceptives, contraceptives contraceptives that one can take well in advance of ever thinking uh, concretely about performing any particular sexual act. Mm-hmm. So, why does one? Uh, why did? Why was that such a game changer? Right. It seems. It seems to me that uh, it was really a game changer because, the, because the hormonal contraceptives preserve the illusion of spontaneity and thus they're able to be experienced by the people who use them as if they weren't there, as if the act were in fact natural, when in fact, long before you ever engage in the act, you've already set about in a really premeditated way of changing its structure, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, So from a Catholic perspective, actually, contraceptives uh, of the hormonal type are really quite um, radically evil, right? If you if you think about it in this way, yeah, they're very much premeditated, right, right. And I think it's also you know interesting even when you uh, uh, not to go too far back, but even I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that in 1930 at that Lambeth conference that this was not the first time that 
the idea of contraception had come to the Lambeth Conference, that they had actually ruled on it before uh, in favor of the traditional Christian teaching. Right. Uh, and it was uh, kind of, uh, uh, it caused a bit of a, a, a fight within the church there. And eventually it came to this 1930 vote. They voted and that was it. So it wasn't kind of this thing that came out of nowhere. But even right. within the church there, it was it was a, a compromise after compromise of uh, Christian teaching. It wasn't just kind right. of a, a new discovery or something like that, but a gradual compromise. Right. And when you look at the declaration... It's it's not even um, it's not even a wholesale acceptance, right? It's right. It's it's a very narrow, very narrow thing. But moving moving forward to um, the period when the pill appeared on the market, we see that actually the Second Vatican Council was part of that same era, mm -hmm. right? So the, the pill is introduced in 1959, and really becomes uh, widely known by about 1960. Now suddenly we have the Second Vatican Council, which closed in 1965, and you know we everyone knows about um, the air uh, surrounding right the Second Vatican Council, the sort of what we call the spirit of of the Second Vatican Council, the spirit of Vatican II, yeah. um, you know which uh, traditionally minded kind of regard as um, you know, sort of some kind of a a, a horror uh, story, right? Like a <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it's a it's a horrible Halloween costume I've also seen as well, where you know right, guitars right. and tambourines, you know, right. yeah. of that. <laughs> So, um, but the reason, but you know, what it what that is, Pope Benedict, right, was was very critical of the quote unquote spirit of Vatican II because sure. he said that it was something rather different from the actual Vatican II. And I <laughs> and, and I, I agree with him completely about this. When you look at the documents, you don't you don't see anything of the spirit of Vatican II in those documents, right? You had to you have to read not only read between the lines, you really have to read into the documents entirely. And I don't yeah. want to get into yeah. debates here about people <laughs> at the council with ulterior motives and their own secret agendas. We can have that discussion at some other point, but but it's irrelevant from the fact that the documents themselves don't actually ratify any such spirit of Vatican II. But many people, but but many people took the the, the occasion of Vatican II to take advantage of uh, of this kind of atmosphere of being a little more open, looking back to the sources, and you know between. Uh, uh, here and there, they just kind of wholeheartedly ignored uh, both what the, the council the said. And, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely that you know that the spirit of Vatican II is a real phenomenon, right? But it just doesn't. It, it wasn't. It's not justifiable in light of the council itself or its <laughs> documents. Yeah. But uh, but nonetheless, it was a thing that was going on sociologically within the church, and. That represented its own crisis. There were many in in that movement, if you want to think of it as a movement, right, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of used the Second Vatican Council event as a springboard to advance uh, a, a very different agenda than the one that one sees through an honest reading of the council documents. Sure. Um, and you know, you you and I have spoken before about about how Paul VI very interestingly uh, published a credo of the people of God, right? 
which yeah. itself represented a uh, an intervention in the face of these kinds of um, these kinds of abuses. So during this period, there were those advocating for um, an acceptance, right? C- coming up to the times, an acceptance of uh, of the modern age, which involved now the technological advance, as it was seen, of hormonal contraception. And, the, you know, there were many people at the time who believed that environmental disaster was was um, about to befall humanity because of overpopulation, mm-hmm. a uh, thesis that has proven uh, not, in fact, to be accurate, right? So anthropologists now understand, I'm told by anthropologists, whom I know, that um, that for reasons not fully understood, human population has a tendency to level off at a certain density, right? So that we can look at the world, uh, its geographical land masses, and we can see that there's a limited amount of urbanization that can possibly occur, at which point the maximum naturally occurring population of the globe would settle in at somewhere around 10 billion people. And we can easily actually feed that many people with modern agricultural techniques. So, the idea of of the world being you know overrun with with human beings and uh, we have you know sort of a uh, a um, soil and green scenario right if you know that that science sure, fiction sure. Uh, is simply not is simply not accurate but that was one of the things that people at the time were fearing right and they said well hormonal contraception is a the time has come it's the right it's a technological advance that's going to save the world. And the Catholic Church needs to get on board with endorsing it. So that was the actual climate at the time, right? Also, you know, a push toward, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the sexual revolution was underway, largely fueled by the pill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was pushing against our sense of human sexuality, what we were, what we found to be soci- socially acceptable, right? Uh, and there were many people, again, who simply wanted the church to adopt the views of the prevailing culture. So it was to this that Paul VI was uh, responding. Now, at first, you know, he encyclicals are typically not simply written by the Pope unaided by others, right? Sure, sure. Historically, popes, um, popes assemble committees to really draft preliminary documents and and the Pope kind of makes final editorial decisions, but he's he's rarely responsible for, uh, in fact, writing most of it, right? Yeah, and the uh, uh, the, the commission for this one was made up of uh, 58 clergy, theologians, married couples, uh, lay women, and um, they consulted other people, obviously, and then they formed uh, this commission that informed Paul VI, um, and then they made their you know, uh, propositions uh, to him of what they thought and, um, you know, and and in particular, you know, certain theologians and certain cardinals made their uh, will known uh, to to the Holy Father at that time. Um, And it was, you know, not just, uh, hey, I'm going to send out a survey monkey and, you know, you guys fill it out and get it back (laughs) to me within the next week. You know, it wasn't something like that. I mean, it was... Uh, it was several years of, uh, you know, a couple of years of study. It wasn't just a, 
an, an overnight kind of thing. And so, you know, Paul VI took that in and there was produced uh, Humani Vitae, um, which, which right. you know, we, 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 we've heard recently, especially in some, some articles uh, out there that, you know, uh, some of the clergy or a lot of the clergy actually were in favor of uh, allowing contraception. Uh, right, that's Paul, right. Yeah, but Paul VI, he held his ground uh, uh, to to a good extent, um, which, you know, I think even goes, you know, even to the, the, when you go with the, even the sexual revolution, there was also kind of a movement within several parts of the church of kind of this, uh, particularly the American church, of kind of everything as a democracy, that we can right. simply uh, uh, vote on these things. And, and even to the point of, I remember reading some where even uh, they said that the, the parishes, uh, part of the, the, the parishes understanding uh, could, could inform and in some cases they could descend from church teaching in this way. So there was, you know, kind of already this idea between the, the democracy, but also in the uh, free or the kind of the free understanding of human sexuality. However, the, the hippies understood that um, uh, to, to try to bring that into the church. Um, and so, you know, this influenced this commission. And I think that's something that people need to remember that, oh, well, he had this commission of really smart people. Well, you know, it, that doesn't mean that this commission is somehow objectively uh, protected from the things of the culture uh, and that, or that the church is, you know, protected from the things of the culture in this way and that she very has to, uh, fight against many of these things. Um, so maybe, maybe with like the, the commission, um, what were kind of, uh, maybe you can get into, you know, what was their kind of final recommendation to Pope Paul VI? Yeah. So the, my understanding of what happened there was in fact, there wasn't a consensus mm. on the question. The, so there were those, for example, uh, the, the, uh, clergy from Poland, right? which included Karol Wojtyła. He was one of the uh, advisors there, right? Now, they were unfortunately behind the Iron Curtain, so their ability to participate was somewhat limited, right? However, right. they did right. critique uh, an early draft of the document, and Karol Wojtyła is noted to have um, responded that he thought the early draft, which we have never seen, right? I mean, you could you know, scholars could look it up, but it's not published uh, the um, the early draft was critiqued as uh, stupid conservatism, right? By by which um, by which he meant that it simply uh, it simply took a a line of argument that um, you know that was not especially insightful and um, didn't really answer the questions that the modern culture was asking. And one thing we I think we've learned is that if you don't answer the question that's actually being asked, uh, the person you're the person you're trying to explain your position to is not likely to be persuaded, right? Even if your arguments are valid, right? right? So anyway, they, you know, they urged a different approach and they were pushing more in a personalist direction. Uh, now, the it's interesting that by by the standards of Pope John Paul II, right? Paul Paul VI encyclical is is uh, microscopic. You know, it's it's an essay in comparison to a book, right? John Paul II basically wrote books when he yeah. wrote encyclicals. Yeah. But Paul VI wrote something more of a classical kind of encyclical, a relatively short thing. But there, there, in the end, there really wasn't there wasn't consensus over this question, 
which I find to be an interesting historical fact. And it may explain why it is that when Paul VI uh, published Humani Vitae, he published it as an encyclical rather than an apostolic constitution. Mm-hmm. Right? So in many ways, right, you would say that if this were an apostolic constitution, um, you know, we, we wouldn't really be having the kinds of conversations today that that we are having because an apostolic constitution is a document of greater authority than an encyclical is. It's typically the the vehicle that's used. Well, not there, there is no typical in this case, but the it would be the vehicle that theologians generally would expect uh, if a pope wanted to uh, affirm a teaching ex cathedra. Okay, so so the fact that Humanae Vitae was not was not given in the form of an apostolic constitution suggests that Paul VI perhaps was confident in what he was saying, but um, but stopped short of trying to make a um, an ex cathedra assertion about it. I think today, though, this I, this is a, a an aspect of the question that I think is is rather interesting to me. Um, if Pope Francis were so inclined, uh, it seems to me that he would be uh, not only justified, but uh, that it would be recommended that he write a follow-up document to Humani Vitae, not as an encyclical, but as a uh, an apostolic constitution, reaffirming the teaching of Paul VI and elaborating on it perhaps further in light of the fact that Paul VI was proven right in all of his predictions. Uh, why would I say that? Because if one looks at the um, avalanche of literature being produced today all over the globe by lay people and ecclesiastics reaffirming the teaching of Paul VI and Humanae Vitae, which after all, is only the constant teaching and tradition of the church, right? All he did was reaffirm what was already taught, but give some insight about it, uh, some, some, you know, give us a, a way into the, into the reasoning, right, behind the church's teaching. But, but all he was really doing was reaffirming what the church had always taught, right? There's no change in the teaching of the church in Paul VI encyclical. But today, 50 years on, we see... Bishops from Kazakhstan, we see clergy from the United Kingdom, we see theologians from various parts of the world uh, writing um, joint declarations affirming the teaching of the uh, of the encyclical and asking for uh, asking for a formal reaffirmation of it. So if today one were to ask um, what is the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church on this question? What is the census fidei on this question? Uh, one would have to say it's that Paul VI was, in fact, right. Now, one would obviously come back to me and say, but Dr. Bolzakelli, um, most Catholics in the pew don't hold this view. Most use contraception um, as liberally as the rest of the culture do. So how could you say that the ordinary and universal magisterium and the census fidei 
point in the direction of a reaffirmation of the teaching of Paul VI. That very topic of the 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 census fide with regards to uh, humani vitae, uh, just for our listeners, um, should you feel so inclined, if you want to read a recent article on this from very much the opposite uh, perspective on this, uh, Charles Curran, who will discuss in a little bit he recently posted on national catholic reporter or whichever however else you want to call that on this question of the census fide that it's just simply people who call themselves catholic and it kind of gets again boiled down to this idea of democracy that if right that if just people who identify as catholics if if you know in one of the Kara statistics comes out and you know 80 percent or whatever decide that they want to use contraception then the church should change her teaching on this but that's a complete misunderstanding of what the census fidelium is uh, maybe you can clarify that point for us a little bit uh, because like even right now 50 years on there's still a lot of misinformation with regards to you know what is this uh, uh, sense of the faithful right well saint thomas who's uh, quoted on this in numerous church documents, right, mm-hmm. um, put, puts it like this. Okay, so he doesn't he doesn't really use the phrase. That's sort of a, a you know theologians develop that phrase much later on. But what he says is this: that insofar as a person thinks with the faith, uh, he cannot be mistaken, uh, and specifically on a matter of a matter about which the faith speaks, right? Faith right. and morals. The problem comes in where uh, he says the problem comes the problem arises from the fact that not everything a man thinks is from the faith, right? But that we think from numerous other sources as well. So um, Saint Thomas, as you know, is pretty big on human reason, right? <laughs> He's pretty big on the power of natural reason to uh, grasp the truth. And, and, you know, to reason uh, confidently and to, to know things with, with a high degree of certainty. But he's not a fool, okay? He knows that human reason is fallible, that we can make mistakes, and sometimes in very interesting ways too, right? We can make mistakes like this. You ready for this? And this is a, this is a point actually that I find to be uh, poorly appreciated even by uh, even by many people who um, are really devoted to St. Thomas, right? But here's this, I think, is is something St. Thomas very clearly understands. And if we read, um, you know, we can see in the first uh, question, the one that everybody skips over yeah. in the Summa Theologiae yeah. Prima Pars, uh, about sacred doctrine, okay? We, so he, here's what I'm saying. Human reason can make this kind of mistake. I can um, offer a valid argument based upon truthful premises and still come to an incorrect conclusion. Why? Why? This is interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now th- I know people are going to say, no, that's impossible. No, 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 wait, wait, listen to me, listen to me. Because human reason can't access all truth of its own power. Mm-hmm. And some of the missing ingredients may be necessary premises in an argument that would lead us to the correct position, 
right? So St. Thomas holds out the possibility that there can be an apparent disparity between uh, naturally known truth and truth revealed by God. Apparent disparity, right? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Because in fact, the truth that we think we apprehend through natural reason and have arrived at by using natural reason responsibly, okay, is nonetheless in certain cases incorrect. Because, right, because we're missing a premise in our reasoning right. that right. would be available through revelation but is not available to us through the power of human reason alone. We can't discover it, but if it's revealed, we can know it. And now if we insert that premise, suddenly, oh, I come to a different conclusion. And I think even when you look at the, just of, of what it is, I, I forget, if, I, I think it's uh, uh, Aidan Nichols or or a uh, uh, good Dominican or something, uh, someone like that, who, you know, when he was talking about what is, you know, the sense, the sense of the faithful, that the key word there is is not sense, that it's not this, you know, general whole taken or anything like that, but it's faithful. Right, that that's right. If, if you are not faithful, you have no sense. That's uh, right. That, Story, <laughs> yeah. That, uh -huh. that, that, that this idea of fidelity has to has to be first and foremost in order for there to be a sense. That if you don't have this fidelity, then you cannot have this uh, uh, sense that is guarded by the Holy Spirit, that is guarded from error. That if you mm -hmm. if the fidelity is not there, so I mean to have this idea that the sensus fidelium could come to the conclusion of something that is contrary to the faith, is th that's absurd. Right. So that's right. So or contrary to you know to what's been constantly taught and right. and believed, uh, you know. So can the can the sensus fidei change? No. Right. So not I mean, it, it, we can there can be insights that develop, but we can't really have a fundamental alteration in the census fidei. But that's exactly what we would have if we if we if we flipped on contraception. Mm -hmm. So this is yeah, this is kind of the, the point that I wanted to make was the you know, current is operating, I think, from from a secular democratic perspective, not uh, not a um, not a theological habit of mind. Right. And I know that's a confrontational thing to affirm, especially for, um, you know, a theologian, a, a theologian who's got a generation or two on me. Right. Um, who am I to, to 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 question his theological acumen? But I'm, I'm simply saying that, you know, his his career is uh, his career is marked by a reliance not upon uh, a theological habit of mind, which takes its cue from the constant teaching and tradition. But instead, a secular um, a, a, a reliance upon um, upon the secular sense of things through through um, sort of an enlightenment frame of mind, right? And I uh, so he's thinking with natural reason, and from the point of view of natural reason, he may arrive at um, positions that make a certain kind of sense. But he's he's bracketing the very data. That frees the mind uh, to to perceive the truth as it really is, right? He's if if we look at the church's stance toward contraception, we can see that in every place where it's ever discussed in the life of the church, going back to the time of the apostles, it was condemned 
And in fact, uh, that this condemnation extends not only to the early church, but we find it also in the ancient rabbinical literature as well. Contraception was not accepted in Judaism at the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Bible, we don't see contraception as such addressed, uh, but we do see, um, you know, we do see the issue. We see that story about Onan, right? And I know that people have said, oh, you can't extrapolate from the story about Onan that, um, you know, that the church condemns, uh, you know, any particular act. I don't agree with that, right? It seems to me, <laughs> it seems to me that Onan, in that story about Onan, he's approaching the sexual act uh, for the purposes of his own gratification without a view to, um, without a view to his, to its divine purpose. And, um, and so, you know, in his, in his, uh, prema- in his premature withdrawal, right, he, um, he is doing the very thing at issue in contraception. And for that, of course, you know, he gets struck blind or something, right? He's smited, <laughs> so, yeah. Smited by God, right? I was looking through um, Charles Kern's current article when he's talking about the sense of the faithful. Uh, and he, he kind of even in, includes this as, or when he's defining it, he calls it, you know, the doctrinal intuition of believers. Um, that this kind of, you know, in, in this, I don't know, just this idea that this intuition, uh, and I think this hits right at the point of what you were trying to say, was kind of, you know, yeah, we can have great intuition. But does that mean that nothing is going to be missing for us to come about a correct answer? Yeah. I'm intuitive to a lot of things, but does that mean that I always get the right answer? No, I get it wrong mm-hmm. a lot of times, and that's why, again, this this idea of you know fidelity uh, has to uh, uh, has to be there first in order for there to actually be uh, this this sense that is guarded by the Holy Spirit. Now, with now with the the, the whole current affair, um, why do you think that was kind of left alone? Why do you think that he wasn't come. He he didn't receive more of a uh, a punishment, or you know, why was he kind of appeased and even rewarded in some sense? Yeah, so that's a one of the great mysteries, and we talked about <laughs> it a little bit in in, in in a different podcast, right? Sure. Um, where I suggested that you know John Paul II and um, and Benedict had little appetite for the kind of heavy hand that had been used against against them and their uh and their colleagues in an earlier stage right so when when they were in power uh they were reticent to sort of crush the the uh the dissenters even when they knew for sure that they were you know that they were wrong and gravely so um and i think that they they can be criticized rightly for for that right because the 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 difference is, the difference is that they they uh the people we're talking about in this case charles curran is clearly and objectively uh, teaching contrary to the teaching of the church this is not a matter of permissible opinion right mm-hmm. So um, whereas, you know, that was not the case in earlier examples involving, as I mentioned in my pre- in the previous podcast, you know, um, Ari de Lubach, right? And, sure. and yeah. some of the other people. So the um, I, I think it was a it was a qualitatively different set of circumstances. Um, 
and they should have acted, in my opinion, differently than they did. But that was their judgment to make, not mine. Nonetheless, it's false to say that nothing happened to Charles Curran. Right, 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 right. Right. So, in fact, he was uh, stripped of his of his canonical mandate to teach theology, and um, and thus was moved from his position in the Catholic University of America to um, a non uh, a non pontifical um, faculty position in which he wasn't going to teach theology, but something like, you know, comparative religions or something. So, um, but he, he remained on the faculty and that was, so really his life changed a uh, little from that, uh, from that affair. And the university, the university kind of, um, gave him, you know, sort of aided and abetted him, right? Which I think is where the real scandal is. My understanding though, is that, you know, the, the situation was so, Harry at the time that um, the, there was a serious concern about the possibility of losing Catholic University to the secular culture, right? Losing it. Uh, in other words, the church losing its grasp on it. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this, this is something you, know, you might say, and I'm sympathetic with this position, actually. So what? Let it, let it go. If it's not going to be, a, if it's not really going to be a Catholic church, a Catholic um, university, just, let it go rather than having it do the damage of representing itself as one and teaching contrary to the faith, right? Those of us who are critical of Georgetown and, uh, and, and numerous other Catholic institutions today, uh, because they seem more hostile to church teaching, uh, more of the time than they ever are supportive of it, right? Oh, yeah. uh, at an institutional oh, yeah. level. Why not just let them go? Okay. Uh, I don't have a clear answer to that, except to say that what I've been told is that one is uh, concerned that once you let them go, you can never let you can never get them back. Mm-hmm. And there, one has to make a judgment call, right? Um, okay, well, we'll never get them back, or well, let's let's keep working at it and see if we can bring them around again. I don't know how that's going to work out, right? It turns out with Catholic University, actually, that they have largely come back. Catholic University is a decent place now. But back at that particular time, uh, it was unclear which direction it was going to go. And had they pressed the matter, uh, they may, they may have, there may have been a divorce between, between the church and that institution. Yeah, and I even, I've even heard the, uh, uh, the idea that it even went further than, just the uh, just the thought that there would be this kind of divorce or this divide between just the university and uh, the Vatican, that it would even go as far as a majority of America. Uh, and the, the, the kind of thing sticking in the back of every, everybody's mind at that time, uh, or at least in Rome, this is, again, this is one theory that I had heard, um, that, it was, that it was actually, you know, King Henry VIII. And everything that happened with him, that, you know, had the Pope just granted him or maybe not have been so harsh on King Henry VIII, we wouldn't have this huge uh, uh, schism in the church and, 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 you know, essentially lose, uh, you know, the entire uh, uh, country for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the, 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 yeah, right. the thought was that there was this fear that this might happen to America now over this over this issue. 
uh, if we come down too hard on it. You know, who can know whether it would have ended in a great um, schism between the American church and the Vatican? What's interesting now is that the American church is largely now by American church here. I'm I'm, I'm speaking of um, uh, I'm speaking of sort of the at the level. Well, how do I put this? Let's say let, let's look at the church under its aspects of health. Okay, so the church, you know, always has areas in which it needs to be healed, and other areas in which it's rather healthy. So, I think that in many ways, you know, we've seen a period of of health in the Catholic Church in the United States. If we look at, um, if we look at sort of, you know, the what John Paul II and Benedict XVI did for uh, returning young people. Uh, who, well, let me put it this way, intentionally minded young people mm-hmm. to a sense of orthodoxy in the church and inspiring vocations to the priesthood and religious life, right? So we actually see that uh, during their papacies, there was there was sort of a movement away from, quote-unquote, the spirit of Vatican II and toward uh, what Benedict might have might have called the reform of the reform, Right. And um, and a, uh, a, a a restoration of a hermeneutic of continuity with the past. So um, and, and that correlated with people understanding the logic behind um, vocations to celibacy and and religious life and the priesthood and willing to make sacrifice, you know, the seeing the value in sacrifice the beauty in marriage and chastity and uh, you know, in the midst, it's not as if it's a linear thing, right? In the midst of a highly secularized and sexualized culture, um, you know, this, this sort of thing is, uh, is, is a a difficult, these are difficult choices for people to make and, and they can embrace something at an intellectual level, but then uh, have to be converted at a spiritual level. But, you know, uh, as people who've who've lived through that period ourselves, you know, we can see that, in fact, right, the theology of the body was a major influence in the United States during that period of time in a resurgence of a strengthening Catholic Church in which, you know, we, we, we had um, seminaries were empty. And now, you know, and then many years later, we saw suddenly uh, – Numerous vocations, right? Not in every diocese, but in many. I, I think that we can. I think we can attribute that to. Um, I think we can attribute that to the efforts that John Paul II and Benedict had made. Um, yeah, and I find it. I find it interesting, having worked in uh, parish life for uh, uh, for years now. I, I find it interesting that, uh, particularly working with people who come to the church wanting to enter the church, RCIA and things, mm-hmm. um, that this uh, this issue of human sexuality is, uh, for a lot of people, it is one reason why they actually come to the church. Um, and also that it is also a reason why many people leave the church. Like right. it's, it's, it's for, for a lot of people, it becomes, you know, the issue. And I think, and I think this, this goes back to a, a question that you always ask with, 
you know, and I think this is kind of good theological practice. When you when you have a teaching like this that, you know, many people out there disagree with, that you ask the question, what is at stake? You know, mm-hmm. if if what they are saying, uh, if, say, you know, contraception should be allowed, what is at stake? If contraception should not be allowed, well, what is at stake? And I think when you when you get into the question like that, you you will see that it is that. You know, contraception ceases to be this kind of. Uh, there, there again. There, there's a, a recent article on National Catholic Reporter. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to get, keep giving them so many plugs, but, uh, but dang. Um, but uh, talking about how you know, well, contraception is really it's just a, a non-essential aspect of the Catholic faith, and so we really don't need to put it up there. Um, as everybody needs to, to, to believe this, we just need to leave it in the realm of follow your conscience, whatever the heck that means. Um, and so we just kind of need to keep it in the non-essential category and assent or dissent, it's up to you. Um, but I think, you know, you, we need to ask that question, what is at stake? Because in reality, for a lot of people, they either leave the church because of this issue or they find the church because the, the when it comes down to it, the Catholic Church is the only uh, Christian church that has maintained this consistent human sexual ethic, one that one that makes sense. And when you ask those hard questions and put it in the broad context of what is at stake with with the entire faith, um, that it's the only one that seems to 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 hold up to that test. And I think a great deal is at stake. So, again, I mean, if you look at my, if you look at the blog post that I've been uh, putting up in my series on Humani Vitae, to, in my view, this really is uh, essentially a dogmatic question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call it a first order, a first order doctrine, by which I mean that the church's teaching about this particular issue, which in and of itself is not really a matter of revelation as such. Uh, is extrapolated um, as a sort of direct intuition from that which is proclaimed dogmatically, such that if what we teach about contraception is false, then we're in fact denying the dogmatic foundation of that teaching. Sure. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. So, um, so it's a very serious matter. Uh, one which I believe the church simply cannot alter. Why? Because our view of God and his providence is uh, is profoundly tied up with our understanding of the licitness or illicitness of contraception. Do we see all human life as a gift that God gives for our good or not? Okay. Do I trust God's creative prerogative or do I not trust it? So if I wish to enter into the sexual act, knowing that in and through this act, God may wish of his own prerogative to create new human life. Do I trust him to make the judgment correctly or do I not trust him? If I don't trust God in this matter, I'm denying what God reveals about himself in the Bible. And I think that and it also, you know, for for me, it also points to not just the the love that the father has for us, you know, because 
you know, as a as a father myself, I let my children participate in my work. But as we know, that this explains uh, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, it's the same with with God the Father. He He's given us a participation in His highest work, namely the creation of human life. Right. Um, right. But He doesn't, and He and in a, and in a very real way, He even limits Himself. He even says, mm-hmm. "I will not act until you act." That we're, you know, we're in this together, you know, um, and so for for one side of that, you know, the the lesser side, obviously us, to say, okay, well, we want to do it, but we don't want you in it, right? You know, right? Like you, you said, it, uh-huh. yeah, you stay out of this, right? Yeah, it it really does go back to, you know, again, I think it's the same foundational kind of attitude or the the same foundational sin as original sin that no right you're not you know we're we're you're you're not welcome here even though you've you're the one who has even given us this opportunity you've given us this share in your work that it does come down to that uh, which is absolutely fascinating so well uh folks that does it for us today next week we'll take a little bit closer look at the document itself and uh, until then, check us out at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Dr. Bruce Kelly, thanks for being with us again today. Uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, God bless.